I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Robbie Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. And today we interview Lauren Underwood, candidate for Illinois' 14th Congressional District. Just two weeks ago, Lauren beat out six other challengers, all men, to win the Democratic primary in her district. She's a first-time candidate. She's a former senior advisor in uh, President Obama's HHS department and a nurse. Uh, Lauren came to our first arena summit back in December 2016, walked through the doors and said she wanted to run for Congress. She recruited her campaign manager at that event and then was a part of our inaugural class of arena fellows. We have been privileged and honored to support her every step of the way in this journey, and we cannot wait to see what she accomplishes in the years ahead. Let's jump right in. Well, Lauren, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thank you, Robbie. So glad to be here. Well, congratulations on your victory. What is it, about two weeks ago? Like 10 days. Wow. Yeah. Crowded field. How many people did you beat out for that nomination? Six guys. Wow. <laughs> so uh, tell us about how you did it. You know, we got a lot of folks right now who are entering their primaries in the next two months. Um, you know, when you started, this was your first campaign. And so it wasn't obvious that you beat out six people to win the nomination. Uh, what do you think some of the keys to victory were? So it's really interesting. When I first launched the campaign, I had four opponents. And over the course of the petitioning on the very last day, two random new people that no one saw coming filed. And so the last three months of the race were with this full field of seven, myself included. Um, And it was quite an adventure. Um, As a first-time candidate, you know, learning to build a team, learning about all the mechanics of running, both, you know, staff and grassroots operations, but also technical things like collecting your petitions to get on the ballot, um, and then moving forward into that, you know, immediate pre-primary period. It was certainly a learning process. Um, And in my field, there were several other first-time candidates. And so that created a different environment in the community where we were dealing or working with um, grassroots activists that were first-time activists. And so it's many of our first time literally in the arena, um, whether it's as a voter or as a candidate. Yep. Uh, my team was very focused on the idea that we needed to be excellent at every turn. And that's something that I really emphasized to them um, as a woman, as a young millennial person of color. Um, we didn't get the same breaks as other more traditional looking or experienced candidates would receive. And so as a result, we constantly went above and beyond, um, whether it's the number of petitions, you know, the ballot out raising people, you know, being more conservative with our spending so that we would always have cash on hand and the like, um, not making mistakes. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of them can't be anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, there's these landmines that are waiting to explode. But um, we were just trying to be really disciplined um, because the consequences are just different um, with, with a bio like mine. And so taking a step back, tell us about the district. Like, where sure. is it? And uh how they traditionally voted? Sure. So I'm from a town called Naperville. It's in northern Illinois. I live 45 minutes west of Chicago. Our town's actually been drawn into three congressional districts. So we think about gerrymandering so often. It's um, maybe urban or communities or more rural where you're like slicing, you know, street by street. But my, my suburban town is a classic example of a large community in the state of Illinois that's voice has been muddled by really Democrats in the state house who've drawn the map. 
Um, and so I live in the Will County portion of Naperville, which is in the 14th district. Illinois 14th is seven counties in the western suburbs of Chicago, half suburban, half rural. We stretch from the Wisconsin border um, down to a town called Shorewood, which is our seven most point, 1,500 square miles. And so this community used to be held by Denny Haster, the 14th district. He was the Speaker of the House in the 2000s very conservative, left the Congress in disgrace after allegations that were proven to be true that he sexually assaulted young boys when he was a high school wrestling coach. But he was at the pinnacle power in this country. And that's who held this seat as a very conservative Republican. Um, in 2008, when he left Congress, he was replaced by a physicist, a Democratic physicist named Bill Foster, who voted for the Affordable Care Act, got voted out, in 2010, when so many other Democrats lost their reelection, and our Congressman Randy Holcren won in the Tea Party wave. And he has stayed true to so many of those Tea Party values. And now he is far more conservative than our district. Mm -hmm. Our district is a moderate community, suburban, highly educated, high, high income. Average income is $105,000. A year, and that's with a lot of stay-at-home moms. And so, this is a district um, that has voted Democratic before, in, right? Two thousand eight to twenty ten for the congressional, um, and then our current congressman's been in office, got sworn in since twenty eleven. But in the sixteen election, um, Donald Trump got forty nine percent, Hillary Clinton got forty five percent, and with that forty five percent showing, she outperformed Barack Obama in twelve. Wow! Um, and so this so is it's getting tighter. It's getting tighter, and it's definitely winnable. We're our plus five district, and we've seen plus twenties, right? And so, right. so we know that we're definitely in play. Got it. And so uh, tell us about your upbringing and your connection to this district. Because, um, you know, like it wasn't, you know, there's this idea of, uh, you know, running for office for a lot of people. Uh, it includes a transition and you were working in public service yeah. and decided to go back uh, to the district. Um, what does this district mean to you? What's your connection to it? And what has it been like being back in the district after serving for so many years? Sure. So this is the community I grew up in. My family moved to Naperville when I was three years old in 1990. Wow. Um, my parents are originally from Cleveland. Um, they met at a nightclub. <laughs> They're going to hate that I said that, but it's true. And they well, met at a party. Well, you know, they yes. right? right. <laughs> In Cleveland, yes. And so when uh, I was young, my dad got a job in Chicago and we moved and, you know, grew up in this community that was transitioning from a farming community to like a big booming suburb that it is now. Um, went to elementary school there, went to high school there um, and left when I went to college. Um, I went to the University of Michigan. And so after graduate school at Johns Hopkins, I ended up staying in Washington, D.C., got my dream job working to implement the Affordable Care Act. It was one of those situations where I was like, how could they let me do this? This is so fun and so great because I was responsible for things like private insurance reform, healthcare quality and Medicare program, the preventive services rules, like the free contraceptive coverage stuff that the Trump administration's been trying to roll back. Anything that was high profile, controversial, subpoena requests, you know how it was. Yeah. Back when the ACA was first getting rolled out, that was my job to implement and you know, across the agencies um, and make sure that the regulations went out. I then um, had the opportunity to join the Obama administration and work on public health emergencies and disasters, things like Ebola and Zika and the water crisis in Flint. And I stayed till the very last day of the administration. So my career in public service was split as a career employee and as an appointee. So I had the option to stay on in federal service after the Obama administration left. Did you think about it? I did, 
because I didn't think that Trump was going to win. But when it became clear that Trump won the election, I knew I couldn't stay because it was clear immediately that he wanted to take away health care coverage from the American people. And that's not why I became a nurse, which is my professional background. That's not why I entered the space. Um, That's just like not what I'm interested in doing. So I knew I was going to leave and I wanted to return home because that would be the opportunity to really have impact and make change. Um, Illinois is a state that expanded Medicaid. Um, thanks to the ACA. And so I began working for a Medicaid managed care company in Chicago when I got back as a way to sort of continue forward that health reform work. Yep. So let's talk about your profession. So my mom is a nurse. And so I spent a lot of time uh, just watching her in action mm-hmm. as a kid. You know, like from time to time after school, I would go hang out. She's nursing nursing homes. Okay. Uh, and, you know, we, we were joking the other day when the, all this data came out, that nurses are the most uh, admired profession in the United mm-hmm. States. I imagine politicians are probably one of the Way least. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're trading one profession that's uh, the most admired for one of the least admired. Uh, what, uh, what kind of work have you done in medicine? Uh, and what made you uh, choose that profession in the first place? Because this is actually not a profession that we see a lot of people enter politics. That's right. So I decided to become a nurse after being diagnosed with a heart condition when I was in third grade. I have a condition called supraventricular tachycardia, and that means I have an accelerated heart rate. If you were to go around a mile, your heart rate would speed up due to exercise, anxiety, or stress. When that stimulant goes away, your heart rate naturally slows down. Mine doesn't always get that electric signal to slow down, and so it'll stay in a loop of just rapid heart rate from time to time. And it's well controlled now, but when I was younger, I was you know, paying pretty regular visits to my cardiologist and was inspired by the medical professionals who provided this excellent care. And so I knew that I wanted to go into that space and picked nursing in high school when I discovered public health and the idea of being able to improve healthcare for populations, right? It's not just person to person, but if you can have an intervention to help a whole community, you know, reduce their asthma attack rates or reduce their diabetes or whatever. Um, That was just inspiring to me. And I saw nursing as the vehicle, both in terms of education preparation and then also just having that clinical rooting to do that work. Um, And so in high school, I also, while I was, you know, looking at public health and healthcare, I also um, served in our local Fair Housing Commission. So my town, our mayor, decided to get high school students involved in local boards and commissions. And so there were about 10 of us that got appointed through like a political appointment process at like 16 and 17 to these local boards. And so that was my first entry into public service. And so I was hooked, inspired that I could have a voice and make recommendations to city council at 17, um, but had no clue that I could combine those two interests, right? Healthcare and public service until I got to college and discovered health policy um, and was off to the races from there. And so when I was in in college, I was interning for the federal government, the CDC. I was working on Capitol Hill and Senator Obama's office um, and not necessarily doing the other rotations that my classmates were doing over the summers, like ICU or mother baby. That just wasn't my interest. I always knew that this policy space was where I would land. Um, And so obviously, I'm licensed as a nurse. I'm licensed in three states. You know what I mean? I have a, my clinical foundation. I teach at a school of nursing. I teach um, master's students how to navigate the policy space and learn how to be strong advocates for themselves professionally. And um, that keeps me kind of rooted in what's going on in nursing. And then we have this other policy stuff. And that's I like it. Yeah. Um, being able to explore both interests. And so given your profession and the history of this district mm-hmm. and the times that we live in, you must get a lot of folks asking you about healthcare policy in this That's district. Right. 
What are folks saying on the ground? And particularly, what are people who voted for Trump uh, that yeah. you find? You must talk to a lot of Trump voters out there. And uh, what are you hearing from folks about how they're, uh, you know, what are they verbalizing about the health care bill and efforts to roll it back mm-hmm. uh, and access to coverage right now? Mm-hmm. What's happening on the ground? So it's so interesting. It's the number one issue that I hear. You know, what are we going to do about affordability specifically in healthcare? Um, because there's a lot of families in our community that, you know, have high premiums that they're paying, whether they're struggling to pay, and then they can't afford to use the coverage. And it's not enough to have an insurance card in your pocket if you can't use it. And so the affordability question is often expressed in different ways, right? So there's sort of a contingency that's very passionate about Medicare for all and single payer coverage and how can we ensure that everyone has insurance coverage. And I share that concern and that value, right? And so I think right now as um, Democrats, as progressives, we're sort of trying to figure out what specifically we want. And I think that this conversation is very healthy. In the same breath, there's people who um, were not pleased with the ACA, think that it might have hurt their families or made coverage more unaffordable, but they don't want to see that option go away. Mm-hmm. Meaning they're looking for a solution to fix it, right? And in my community, there's a lot of families who've relied on their child being able to have health care coverage to 26, um, people who have chronic illnesses and would have hit their lifetime limit and then been ineligible for coverage, um, people who have a disabled child either in a family or in their neighborhood that they're close to and recognize the importance of Medicaid. And if you take away Medicaid or fundamentally change the program, it makes it much more difficult for that child to have a full and healthy life with all the resources that they need. And so what I found is that the healthcare debate maybe has a different tone because of the community that we're in, meaning people with resources on average. Um, But the fundamental concerns about affordability are there. The most striking example for me was about opiate use and this addiction crisis that we have in our country. And, you know, we don't necessarily necessarily see the rate of public overdoses as you do in some other communities, Um, meaning like people overdosing in your libraries or, Mm -hmm. you know, like in a McDonald's or something like that. We don't necessarily see that. We deal with that a lot. You know, it's one of the worst um, districts in the country for that. It's bad everywhere. Um, But what we see are families that can't afford to send their loved one to rehab or detox because their insurance plan will only cover one Detox or rehab, not both. And so in this upper middle class community, we have people who are mortgaging their homes two or three times, right? So imagine, these are homeowners with equity in their homes. Let's say they're mortgaging it twice. So they're pulling out $250,000 to $500,000 in equity, and that becomes unaffordable to then send their loved one to rehab for a third time, right? And we know that for an opiate addiction, you will need to go into treatment, likely numerous times, and you do need both detox and rehab. And so that's how it presents itself. It becomes an affordability concern with a certain amount of privilege, right? You have equity in your home. And if you don't, you end up in the criminal justice system. And that's also wrong. Right. But at the same time, we can just fix the system so that everybody can truly have access to care. And so that's what I've been focused on. The language people use might be different. The examples they use might be different. But the core challenges that impact this community Naperville, St. Charles, you know, all these communities in our district and the issues that impact the urban communities that we touch with the Medicaid plan, addiction's addiction. And treatment knows no class, knows no gender, no race, no economic background, right? It's evidence-based what you need to do. And so we need to make sure 
that everybody has access to those those treatment resources. And so what can the government do? So beyond adjusting Medicaid and Medicare and government-run yeah. healthcare to include uh, a more expansive uh you know, definition and, and version of, um, you know, addiction um, mm-hmm. support. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can we do in the private market to ensure that private insurers include that support as well and that coverage? That's right. So I think that there's a few ways to address that. Number one is you can make it sort of a condition of participation for Medicare or Medicaid that a plan covers both detox and rehab because we know that where Medicare or Medicaid goes, the private market often follows mm-hmm. um, because they have to offer it in their coverage plans. The other way to do it is under the ACA, there were certain 10 categories of what they call the essential health benefits. So just make it an essential You have to make it a benefit that everybody has access yeah. to detox and rehab. And we know that this is just impacting so many people. This is how you combat the current addiction epidemic, I believe. Um, The other change that I would like to see is the way that the federal government awards grant funding um, to communities and municipalities. And so right now it's awarded on a competitive grant basis, meaning those communities that can demonstrate need get money. And I think that that worked not well, but it worked maybe in a crack epidemic mm-hmm. or some other drug, you know, meth and, you know, pills and whatever, because it wasn't everywhere. Yep. Um, but now every community is struggling. But in my district, we have one county that doesn't have a hospital. Yeah. And so if someone overdoses at home in that county without a hospital, they're taken to another county for treatment. But ultimately, they might be declared dead. The county with the hospital gets the death logged on record. So then that county with the hospital gets the resources and not the one where the overdose occurred. And so we're creating an imbalance. Um, And folks just don't have enough resources to combat the drugs that are flooding into the community. And like I think uh, you know, one of the things that I think Democrats are unwilling to do at the moment is uh, look people in the eye and tell them that they're actually some of these things are going to cost more money. And so I think, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, what we're talking about is if we're adding an essential health benefit, right. it's going to increase costs. Now, what do you think that, like, how, how do you think this all uh, comes out in the wash in the sense that people are overdosing, and when they overdose and a hospital has to take care of that, that's the most expensive possible uh, solution to the issue. Uh, it's like back when we were first debating the ACA, mm-hmm. and, you know, Obama used to talk about the fact that people were using the emergency room as their primary that's care. Right. Uh so there's a sense that there's cost savings there from the fact that, you know, the fewer people that overdose, the more people we could treat, the costs will go down there. But, you know, expansive treatment is an ongoing practice that uh, is pretty expensive. So uh, two parts to this question. One is, are there other areas where we can really save, uh, whether it's on the prescription drug side, uh, the government's ability to negotiate, et cetera? Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, the second part is, you know, are we just ready to say that healthcare is just going to be more expensive uh, and tell voters that? So I think that, yes, there's, I mean, we absolutely need to be negotiating drug prices. And I think it's an incredibly wimpy and cowardly response that we hear from our elected representatives right now to say that it can't be done. It absolutely can be done. And we've been doing it in the disaster response space. Yeah. for years. Um, the agency that I worked for um, was responsible for not just infectious diseases and natural disasters, but bioterror. Yeah. Working with drug companies to develop treatments, vaccines, antidotes, to diagnostic products, to bioterror agents, smallpox and anthrax. And we negotiate those. And we negotiate it huh. and require them to have a peacetime use. So if you're going to have a smallpox antidote, it needs to be able to cure antibiotics-resistant gonorrhea. Right. And we have a product in the strategic national stockpile right now that does just that because the government made it a requirement. And I believe, the, well, it's true. The government is the largest payer for healthcare in this country. 
Yeah. The insurance companies, the drug companies are going to bluster, right? They're yeah. going to make a lot of noise when they're asked to come to the negotiating table. But at the end of the day, they will play ball because they know that they're going to be able to sell their product and they're still going to be able to make a profit. And, yeah. and regardless of how you feel about the system right now, we have until we transition to a single payer system, companies have to have a business case yeah. to be able to make some money. Yeah. And they will still be able to make some money even while negotiating drug prices. We just need to elect representatives who are willing to have the communities back, the patients back, and not look out for the drug companies. Right. Um, now, I also think that opportunities for savings will come from, and this is not a healthcare line item, but if you're not going to have all these addicts sitting in jails across the country, and if we're not going to be spending to build new, quote, state-of-the-art, these private prisons, da-da-da-da-da, right? Because we're going to reduce the size of our prison population because people will actually be in treatment. You know, this whole idea of drug courts and these hybrid courts that have emerged are because the criminal justice system could not absorb the number of people who are just addicts. Right. Right? And so if we get people into treatment, you will reduce the size of your prison population. Now, for me, that's just changing the investment. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, as taxpayers, whether it's your state taxes that are paying for your state penitentiary or on a federal level, because there's a lot of federal drug crimes out here. Right. Yeah. You're still going to be paying for that individual. Um, And so I would personally rather see people get treatment, get an opportunity to have a healthy, well life um, than see people continue to sit in, in prison cells across the country. And what is your, your you know, your opponent is a Tea Party Republican. Mm-hmm. It seems like the Koch network, for all the criticisms of it, actually seems to be uh, moving increasingly in the direction of criminal justice reform. Uh, has your opponent shown any signs that he's uh, willing to consider major reforms to our criminal justice system? Criminal justice reform has not been an issue that we talk about in our community. Yeah. So even with what you said on the drug side, like beyond that, this is just not a thing that comes up a ton in the community that you serve. And so usually my comments on it are just like, we can either have people in drug courts or we can have people in treatment. And there's not enough drug courts in America Mm -hmm. to deal with the size and scope of our addiction process. And we need to have a real solution. So you frame it mostly as a fiscal economic issue, less as a justice issue in that community. Um, Well, it's interesting. And I think like part of, you um, you know, after the election in November, you know, when you win, uh, you're going to be part of a Congress that represents, you know, a, a likely Democratic Congress, um, God willing. And you're going to be with a lot of folks who represent different types of communities right. and where the, there are a lot of issues that come up that might not come up as much in your community. That's right. Picking just health care, for instance, what do you think the likely bargain and Democratic solution is going to look like, knowing that uh, what you believe and what members of your community are asking for uh, in Illinois might be different than somebody representing a district out in California, for instance, where the politics might be different and even the economics might even be different in that state. What do you think the the grand bargain looks like at the end of the first uh, two years of a Democratic majority in Congress? Well, first of all, I think that there will absolutely be a health care grand bargain. Absolutely. So that is on the agenda. Um, I think it's going to be a public option. I think that there's going to be a limited negotiated Medicare-related drug price negotiation. Um, I think that there will be a change to the Medicare eligibility age. Um, Now, I don't know exactly what that would look like. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we will see 
a longer term solution for like chip and making sure kids are covered um, and making sure that they can't be like a bargaining chip moving forward. Right. Um, like we saw this fall. Yeah. Uh, and I think that some of like the disease and specialty research dollars are going to be um, codified in a way that we can continue to innovate and we can continue to discover so that we can Funding cycles for research don't work well in three years, right. three year terms, right? right. Like you yeah. need to know that there's a 10 year pathway yeah. um, so that you can see something through. And I think that we will be smart. We being Democrats will be smarter this time about the investments that we make to ensure that they are protected. Um, now, I don't know that this would be on an agenda, but I hope that we can have some resources for local public health. Yep. Because we're seeing, at least in the state of Illinois, local public health is weakened. It's so weak. And so you have companies that are now stepping in, but they're, again, motivated by profit margins. Right. And at the end of the day, there is a real need, um, and I believe role of government, to make sure people get immunized, right? To make sure that somebody who needs Meals on Wheels gets their meals delivered. Right. And that there's a consistent funding source for that, right? Like, yeah. Programs just need resources, and I think that we will be smarter this time around with ensuring that these critical programs are properly funded. So, looking ahead to the general election, yeah, this is you know this is a whole different game now. You know, you're the only Democrat left in the field, yeah, and you're going to take all the arrows from the Republicans. Yeah. Uh, what do you expect over the summer? You know, like what both internal to your campaign, like what are your priorities mm -hmm. as you uh, scale up as a campaign? And the second piece is, um, what do you expect externally? Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I've had 10 days to think about this. And um, in, the, in the 10 days since we had this victory, 57.4% out of a field of seven, I got 57% of the vote, right? So that is it's unbelievable. solid. Yes. Yeah. Um, we, I think, were able to do that because we had a presence everywhere. So these are seven counties that had been under-resourced. Not a lot of volunteer training, not a lot of engagement with the Democratic Party, because you got to remember in Illinois, Barack Obama didn't campaign there. The headquarters was there, but there was not an Illinois OFA that was right. like strongly operational. Not to diss anybody that worked on Illinois OFA, but right, they right. just didn't have to build because he yeah. was our senator. So yeah. that's two presidential cycles. It was largely investment. a fundraising operation. <laughs> yes. OFA. Yes. Yeah. And then Hillary Clinton didn't campaign in Illinois. And so now we are three presidential terms without investment from that level and then or presidential cycles yeah. um, campaigns. And so when a campaign like mine emerges where we need to have volunteers in every rural part of the district, every sleepy suburban town part of the district, we are having to create and build up the skills level. There's people who don't know how to phone bank and interact with a combative person over the phone because they haven't been trained. Yep. Because that has not been part of what gets done to win elections in these kinds of communities. Um, and so we are going to continue that work because the, having a presence everywhere, I think, is critical. Even the, even the most rural, bright red spots on our map, mm -hmm. I believe, are bright red in terms of conservative voting history because no Democrat has even thought to compete there. Yeah. There are communities where a Democrat hasn't knocked on a door in 10 years. And so they generally are the rural parts, but I go and talk to these farmers and they're telling me, you know, Lauren, we really need someone to have a serious conversation about climate change because it's impacting our crop yields. Yep. And we can't even deal with crop insurance and reforming the crop insurance system unless we can have a real conversation about climate change and where we're headed. Right. right? The Republicans don't want to touch that. Right. And so now you have Mr. Farmer at play. 
to come and vote with us. Why? But he's just looking for relief so mm-hmm. that he can sustain his business and feed his family. Yeah. Right. And so I think that it's very short sighted on the part of our member of Congress to ignore communities that he thinks are in his pocket. Right. Um, and our congressman's absent. He has not had a public event in nearly a year. Yeah. And that last public event was not one where we could freely engage with him. Yeah. And so there's a narrative, I think, in the national press about forgotten communities like small Rust Belt coal mining Appalachian towns, which I think is very valid. But then there's this also this other forgotten community where we just have absent members. Right. People who aren't showing up for us, aren't engaging, aren't accessible, aren't responsive. Yeah. And um, we're no better for it. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, that's our strategy. Building the summer, having a presence everywhere, engaging with folks everywhere, regardless of voting history, regardless of party identification, um, and building the relationships um, because they need to be built. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the Republicans, you know, um, it's interesting. I've seen that our congressman is beginning to make friends with the Cokes, which I think is interesting. And uh, yet... Our district has not been elevated to the GOP priority warning list, right? And so um, even though we're a tier one race to the DCCC, we are not, so they're not on their side. Of, they're not scared enough of you yet. Nope. And I'm okay uh-huh. with that. Yeah. Um, I do expect to get a tracker. I do expect, you know, like the people that come and oh, yeah, us in the communities. Yeah. I do expect um, there to be like nasty rumors and questioning my credentials yeah. and, you know, dragging my family through things. And I'm building up that thick skin yeah i'm um, sure race will be deployed yes. uh you know given that you're a black woman running that's a right. majority white district that's right. yeah and um you know we'll be ready yeah and so how does it feel so uh, you know you and i uh, met each other back in december mm-hmm. 2016 you walked mm-hmm. through the doors of the arena summit mm-hmm. you met your eventual campaign manager there mm-hmm. you um, first started talking about running there we mm-hmm. watched you come up when um, not enough people were taking you seriously. And then, you know, watching on election night was amazing. You're seeing all these people be like, we're underwood. Look over here what's happening in yeah. Illinois. Uh, how does it feel? Uh, are you um, able to keep your head above water right now? Yeah, this the last 10 days have been just totally overwhelming because two days after we won, we got added to the DCCC's Red to Blue list, right? Which is just like a whole nother operation. Right. Right. Um, and so I'm excited. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to even have run, right? right? To be able to speak to my community in this way at this time that so many people have felt hopeless and uncertain about the future of our country, to be able to sit in their living rooms and have these real conversations about, you know, the good that government can do and also um, the importance of everyone participating and the power we have as citizens. Like, they're just fundamental conversations, but that is what I think um, is powerful about this process of running. Um, And so I feel certainly a responsibility. Um, I feel, you know, the hopes of 30,000 people in our district who, you know, voted for roughly 30,000 who voted for me in the primary. Um, And, you know, a lot of responsibility to do the work with integrity. Um, regardless of the ultimate outcome, right? Because this is our first chance and perhaps our only chance until redistricting. Um, and we know that Illinois is going to lose a seat. 
mm-hmm. in the census. Because population loss? Yes. Because the state of Illinois is not doing well economically. A lot of people have left. Um, and so it's really important for us to overperform expectations in our district if we have any hope of a fairer map. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the issues that comes up a lot in our community is the role of money in politics. Right. And it's disgusting, right? And it's wrong and that, you know... It's wrong, but it's not just the money, right? Because unless we fix the maps and restore voting rights, our system will be broken. For me, it's an issue that all three have to improve. Um, And so we have a lot of work to do, but I certainly feel that there's a lot of hopes and investment and people who are counting on us to do well. And I just caution the folks in my community that we can't rest on a wave. Mm. Right. Like the wave only happens if we do the work. If we do this unglamorous work of door knocking on those 80 degree days and your feet hurt and, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody just gave you a hard time, you have to get back and do it again the next day Um, because the newspaper is not going to cover us. We are not going to be on the local news. Um, But the work is how we win the elections. It's not the press. It's not the spotlight. It's the work on the doors and in this in the living rooms and all these things. Um, and so that, that was sort of like a mindset adjustment. Yeah. 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 The summer is going to be a lot of fun. It is. Uh, and so as we close, how can folks get involved in your campaign uh, if they want to help you out uh, through the summer and through the yes, fall? Yes. We would love your help. We need your help. You can sign up online at underwoodforcongress.com slash volunteer. And um, when you go to that page, you're going to see a few options. Things like an opportunity to come to Northern Illinois and join us for like on the ground outreach. Please do, it's gonna be gorgeous weather. We're so close to Chicago that you can see all your friends. Um, We have wonderful, lovely families who wanna put you up in supporter housing. They are like primed and ready. And they were sort of, I think a lot of people that were hurt that they didn't get asked to do supporter housing for the primary. So they are ready to have you for the general. You got a sense of folks out there. Um, And then there's also phone banking and we're gonna be doing that all summer. Um, And then we, you know, would love your help if you're a creative person and like graphic design or you're a video editor, you know, like those kind of creative skills, please. We'd love to have you on the team. So the entry point is underwoodforcongress.com slash volunteer. You can find us on all the social sites except for Snapchat because, I mean, that's just hard for me. I do Instagram stories. And so, um, and the Instagram stories are really me. Yeah. Whereas sometimes other people do do the Twitter and do do the Facebook. But Instagram is Lauren Underwood for sure. Uh, well, Lauren, thank you for joining us. Good luck out Thanks. there. Thanks. Thank you, Robbie. It's so fun to be here. <laughs>